0: great this morning you know one of the things I, I confess is that when i'm alone when i'm in my thoughts maybe i've just dropped the kids off at school right? right i've got a few minutes to myself or maybe i'm climbing to bed and it's late aaron's already asleep and i have a moment there sometimes i dream of winning an olympic gold medal now i know that is ridiculous I'm well past the age of which I could win any medal, save like watching the Olympics maybe if there was a medal for that. I could win that. But I'm too old. I am too slow. I am too soft. I am too weak to make any team. But sometimes I dream that like some miracle I would make the USA swim team. And it's back in 2008 and we're in Beijing and Phelps is going for his eight golds. And I'm not Phelps. I know enough not to dream like that. he's going for his eight golds and it's the four by 100 free relay which is kind of like the four by 400 in track If some of you know track better than swimming it's the big iconic relay in swimming it's there. the french are the world record holders and they are coming into beijing and they're talking all this trash about they're going to smash the american team and they have the best time to beat clearly and so it's the time of the race and this time i'm jason lezak who's the anchor And as I enter the water, last leg, half a body length behind, right, half a body length behind the world record holder in the 100, right, Alan Bernard, the guy who said we've come to smash him, I enter half a body length behind him, I come to the first wall, the first 50, he's now a body length ahead, I turn, but on that last 50, I start to gain. I start to pull up. Thank you for that, amen. I think that was Jacob. Jacob. I start to pull up. And if some of you remember this race in 2008, one of the most iconic swim races ever, Lezak hugs the lane, drafts off Bernard, and in the closing 10 meters, just out touches him, and the whole stadium erupts. Phelps is able to win his eight gold medals. That's that iconic. He's like, yes. All right, that's Phelps. The place goes crazy. The French lose. And what's better than that, right? Okay. <laughs> anyway... You can go Google it, not now during the sermon, preferably. You'll enjoy it, though. You can look at it later. None of this this say, like, we dream, right? We dream of greatness. Of course, then I get in the pool, and there's a girl that's like eight years old, not even 60 pounds wet, and she blows right by. And that's kind of the reality of how our dreams go. But we can dream. And maybe it's swimming, right? Maybe it's other sports. I don't know what it is, but we all, right, don't we? We want to accomplish great things. We want to be remembered, For great things we want to be great people all right so raise your hand if you dream about being a nobody a loser an inconsequential person of trifling importance you're like I don't know what that means but it doesn't sound good no we don't dream of being those kinds of people we dream of being the one who drains the three to win the game we dream of being the one who writes the bestseller We dream of being the one who founds that successful business or who wins that elected office or graduates with honors or develops the cure to cancer. Whatever it is, we all have our dreams and we dream of being great. But friends, what's the measure of greatness? What's the measure of greatness? How would you define greatness? For that, I want to encourage you to turn in the gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 32 to 45. So again, Mark 10, 32 to 45. Let me encourage you to turn there. If you don't happen to have a Bible this morning, don't fear of that worship guide you should have received on the way in. You can find our text on page nine, on page nine. And if you are visiting, we're in this middle section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is marching with his disciples toward Jerusalem. And he's just been hailed as the long-awaited Messiah, the deliverer of God's people, and anticipation builds now as they're approaching the holy city. Because everyone expected the Messiah to be an earthly king, which meant that Jesus would sit upon a throne, which meant that he must rout the Romans and the disciples, therefore. What are they anticipating with Jesus marching toward Jerusalem? They're anticipating honor. And prestige, and power, and glory, and lots of glory. Yet what they haven't grasped is that before glory comes suffering. right? Before that crown will come a cross. And twice now Jesus, as they've marched toward Jerusalem, has predicted his death. And yet, each time he does, the disciples don't seem to get it. Right? The first time Peter rebukes Jesus, the second time the disciples remember respond by debating immediately amongst themselves like which one of them is greatest. Over and over, their responses to Jesus' own predictions about his death, well, those responses reek of pride and self-interest. So you know that term selective hearing. You know, it's something that I confess I often have. You know, I hear those things I want to hear, and I miraculously don't hear those things that I don't want to hear. Well, it's like that with the disciples. They hear he's the Messiah. But they don't have ears to hear him say what kind of Messiah he will be. And so Jesus, once again, is going to teach them about what it means for him to give up his life. Right? They're consumed about what they can get out of his life. He's going to have to again say, listen, I've come to give mine up. They want to benefit off this relationship. And now we find them, right? They're on the early ascent to Jerusalem. And with each step as they head up, Toward the holy city, the anticipation is building as the disciples now, they're dreaming of confetti and crowds and all kinds of fawning fans. That's what's in store for them. That's how they're gonna be measuring greatness. So let's read Mark 10, 32 to 45, and just be asking yourself, is that the measure of true greatness? And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. and flog him, and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit. One at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, what is the measure of true greatness according to Jesus? Well, it is quite simple. True greatness is a life given in the service of others. According to Jesus, it is really that straightforward. True greatness is a life given in the service of others. And to help make this point, Jesus is going to contrast the disciples' notion of greatness with his own notion of greatness. So we will have, uh, you know, so to speak, we're gonna have sort of greatness from the eyes of culture as opposed to greatness from the eyes of Christ. And that contrast is really gonna serve as our two points. So let's think of that first one the, the, this notion that, that culture measures greatness by status. That's the first thing I want us to take a look at. Culture measures greatness. By status, right? So the scene opens with the disciples and Jesus and they're on the road. They're headed up to Jerusalem and we read that they were going up not only because Jerusalem was up in the mountains about 3,500 feet up this winding road, but also because it is the holy city and one always went up to the holy city and up to God. And yet we also read there's something different about this trek. We read that Jesus, this time he's walking ahead of them. And the disciples, we read, are amazed by him. Now, normally, Jesus, like any rabbi, would walk, and his disciples would sort of flank him and surround him. That was the normal process, but not now. No, Jesus has gone ahead. Jesus is leading the way. There's a change in him, an intensity. There's a kind of focus. His face set like flint toward Jerusalem as he marches onward. And yet, while the disciples are amazed by this, this change they're seeing, we read that others who are following, well, they're afraid. Now, who are these others? They're probably, right, most likely they're, they're pilgrims headed, you know, up to Jerusalem. It's going to be Passover week, so they're likely headed up to Jerusalem for that annual festival. And we're told they're afraid, though not exactly told why they're afraid, you know, was it Jesus' own steely-eyed determination? Was it, it Jesus' singularity of focus? Did they see that change? Did that cause fear in them? Or maybe it was the knowledge that Jesus, as the Messiah, now marching up toward Jerusalem, well, man, that could only mean one thing. That could only mean potential war with Rome, or at least war with the religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus, so maybe they were fearing some kind of civil war. We're not really told. But one thing you find when reading the Gospels is that fear is actually a common response to someone encountering Jesus. Now, we often struggle to to relate to this notion that Jesus would cause any fear in anybody. Gentle, meek, and mild. Isn't that often how Jesus is presented? Especially this time of year, right? What do we sing in Silent Night? Silent Night, Holy Night. And we sing of that holy infant, right? So tender and mild. That's Part of what's molded our image of Jesus into someone who can be quite mild-mannered, maybe even unoffensive, a soft figure. Maybe we think of Jesus even as a timid figure. But that's more of an airbrushed Jesus that we might receive than actually the biblical account and the biblical portrayal. For Jesus, yes, is he one who's compassionate? Is he lowly toward those who are in need absolutely, and yet this same Jesus is also equally indignant, and he gets righteously angry toward those in power and those who abuse authority. His words, his actions, his life. Well, that often provoked fear in those who knew him best and who witnessed his ministry. So we think of Jesus and the money changers there in the temple. Jesus single-handedly, with his like by his own force. What does he do? But he drives out the money changers and the sheep and the oxen. He drives them out of the temple. That's part of the vision of Jesus, the fearful Jesus we see as we come to the Gospels. Or even his first sermon in Nazareth. If you know the story in Luke 4, he preaches the first sermon in Nazareth. And that sermon is so fiery and so offensive that when those hearing... They knew this Jesus, but they were so offended by what he said, they drug him up to the edge of a cliff and sought to throw him over the cliff, right? He didn't just step on some toes in that sermon. He smashed them. That's the Jesus of the scriptures. He wasn't a mild and meek and unoffensive character that we often take him to be. Such people aren't threats to any establishment, Such mild-mannered people don't earn death sentences for for rebellious teaching and for subversive behavior. No, Jesus was often fearful to behold, and there was something about him in this moment. Something about Jesus, this holy fear that surrounded him as Jesus marched ahead toward the holy city. And yet somewhere along the way, it appears he stopped. He stopped with the twelve, and as the twelve caught their breath, right, they're grabbing for their water bottles, Jesus begins to teach them. On that dusty road to Jerusalem, now for the third time, that he would die. But as you think about this prediction, this third prediction in this path on the way to Jerusalem, it is the most descriptive of the three. And perhaps it's the most detailed because thus far the disciples, right, they don't, they're not gaining any clarity, right? They seem to be just still confused by what's coming. And so Jesus brings, he at least seeks to bring more clarity. We read he'll not only be condemned to death by the chief priests and the scribes, but notice it also says very explicitly he's going to be delivered over. So there's legal connotations to that language, delivered over to the Gentiles. So right there we see once the Jews, right once they have their way with them, they're going to give them over to the Romans. And this is part of that two-step Judicial process we're going to see as we go on later in the gospel because the Jews could condemn a man to death but they actually didn't have the authority under Roman law to execute the sentence which is why they're going to deliver him over to the Romans so the Romans will do it for them. We read in back in uh, eight thirty one how Jesus would suffer many things but we're not told exactly in eight thirty one what those many things are but here we are given a window into the kind of suffering and death, the mockery, right, the spitting. The flogging, that must have been a sobering moment for the disciples. Their faces would, I trust, would have slowly contorted in horror as they heard Jesus talk about his own death. I mean, they had witnessed firsthand what the Romans did to usurpers and to traitors. Now, in the previous sections, when Jesus had predicted his own death... Right again, the disciples didn't fare so well. Peter admonished him. Second time, disciples arguing who's greatest among them. Right? That were those were their first responses. We would think after those two, and after Jesus, and the way he has to rebuke them, we would think now, as they're right there at the Holy City in the last week of Jesus' own life, now they would certainly get it. You know, now they would certainly understand. Their spiritual pulse, right, that had been so weak. Surely it's quickened by now. Which is what makes the scene that follows so surreal, right, so jarring. For no sooner have they gotten underway, they're headed back up to Jerusalem. What do we read that the two brothers, James and John, they spy their moment, they look at one another, they trot ahead, and they get alongside Jesus. And in verse 35, they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So right there, what are they saying? They're like, Jesus, write us a blank check. Write us a blank check, whatever we ask, carte blanche, right? We want it, and we know you can give it. So consider this scene, right? Jesus heading into the final week of his life. He has just finished reading his obituary for the third time And this last obituary, he fills in all of the gruesome details. And the disciples, these two brothers in particular, they're not saying, man, Jesus, that's really awful. They're not commiserating with him. We don't read of any tears they're shedding. They're not putting any arms around his shoulder. They're not saying, man, boy, Jesus, what can we do for you? Man, Jesus, how can we pray for you in this? They're not saying any of that. At least Job's friends, right, at least they sat down with him. At least they tried to commiserate with him. The disciples continue to show themselves to be like the worst friends ever. Right? It's what we've seen. It's right here again. They are the worst friends ever to Jesus. They're not asking, man, what can we do for you? But they're coming to him and making demands of what they expect him to do for them. Right? This is self-interest on steroids. And just consider, therefore, the immense patience of Jesus. He doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't put his hand up to silence them in disgust. He doesn't even say, you know what, listen, guys, you could have at least faked a tear for me just for a minute. Just pretend like you feel badly for what's about to come. He doesn't say any of that. No, he actually enters into a conversation. He's like, okay, fine. You want to talk about you right now. Let's go ahead and talk about you. What do you want from me, he says. And in verse 37, it all comes out. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. There it is. That's what they want all along. One question draws it right out. Grant is is actually an imperative. They're really saying, Jesus, give it to us, what we want When kings reigned upon a throne, right, there was often one chair on either side, a chair on the right or the left, and those were sort of little thrones that were reserved for sort of the most prestigious positions of honor within the kingdom. And so these brothers, James and John, right, they're referred to as the sons of thunder. They're willing to go right to Jesus, and they say, hey, listen, we know you're headed for a coronation ceremony, right? This is selective hearing, like, gone terribly awry. They're convinced he's going to be in his glory, that's what they say. They're expecting a coronation ceremony. They're going, and they reason that, hey, listen, we want those two positions of honor. And their own pride blinds them to the realities of what Jesus has just been trying to teach them. It's as if he didn't just read his obituary. It's as if he never heard they, the brothers, as if they never heard Jesus say those last words heading into our section. What were the closing words from last week? But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then they hear his predictions and they're like, Make us first. No, they're expecting, right? They're expecting in this new kingdom red carpets and photographers and cheering crowds and parades and palaces and Michelin meals and five star hotels, right? That's what they're expecting in this kingdom because they expect greatness to be all about status and they want the seats of honor they just don't want the corner office or the company car or the private jet they want power they want authority they don't just want to be rich they want to call the shots they want others to serve them and to bow down to them and to do their bidding for they measure greatness as the world so often measures greatness in terms of power In terms of prestige, in terms of popularity, that's how they're measuring it. It's all for them about what they can get out of this deal. How they can profit by it. How they can gain by it. And at the end of the day, right, it's all about numero uno for these two brothers. Because if you think about the two brothers, how do we always find James and John? Well, they're always with Peter, right? Except when they're first called, back I think in chapter 1, they're always listed with Peter. Right? They're the three, like the triumvirate, Peter, James, and John, always together. But you know, only two can reign alongside Jesus. And so these two brothers hatch their own little plot. They hatch their own little plot, and they cut poor old Peter out, don't they? They cut him out. They're the quintessential ladder climbers, right? They're happy to step upon one, If that means they get to go one rung higher, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod that Jesus had warned them about coming into this whole scene back in chapter 8, right, coming into this path to Jerusalem, he'd warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And this yeast is still needed deep within their own hearts. It is all still there, and we're seeing it come out. And it's not just James and Don. Because when the other 10 hear of it, down in verse 41, we're going to come back to 38 and 39 in a moment. When the other 10 hear of it in verse 41, notice what happens. They become indignant at James and John. right? They're angry. And notice why they're angry. They're not angry saying, man, you guys have been so callous with Jesus. I mean, how insensitive can you be? That's not why they're angry. No, they're upset because James and John have beaten them to the punch. That's why they're upset. They're upset. Because they think James and John are going to get what they want, right and what they value, because for them too, greatness, greatness is about a crown and not a cross. It, greatness is about celebrity and not suffering. Greatness is about honor. It's not about humility. That's how everyone is looking at greatness. Friend, I wonder if you see this morning anything of yourself in the disciples, Anything of yourself and these two brothers, James and John. Do you ever come to Jesus with demands? Do you ever come to him with demands? How often do you come to Jesus expecting him to do great things for you? How often do you expect him to to better your own position in life? How often do you come and pray calling upon him to lift up, your station just a bit higher. You know, so often we say outwardly that we want Jesus to be the savior of our life, but inwardly what we really mean is we want him to sort of supercharge our lives. We want him to give us a bit of a boost, give us a bit of a a raise, so to speak, in this life. And I wonder if that ever describes you. And notice, notice how they couch all of this, their request, in terms of their own discipleship. So when we reign with you, Jesus, they're saying, when we reign with you in your kingdom, right? when your glory comes, this is the part we want to play. But, of course, alongside you, Jesus, on, on the right and the left of you, all in the context of their own relationship and discipleship with Jesus. Friends, how easy it is for our own worship and for our own discipleship to become about self-interest. How easy it is to serve in order to be seen. How easy it is to teach in order to be admired. How easy it is to sing and to play in order to be heard. How easy it is to lead in order to receive praise. And friends, at the end of the day, all of that is, is status in self-interest, masquerading as worship. It's exactly what's happening with James and John. Desire is dangerous. Ambition can be deadly. Our discipleship is never as noble as we imagine it. Can we really say with John the Baptist that in the coming of Christ, in his coming, our joy is complete? Our joy is full, to the brim, need nothing more. Can we say that? That in coming to Christ, our joy is complete, as John the Baptist does, that Christ is everything, and that we have all we need, right That Jesus is truly enough to satisfy all the longings of our soul. Can we say that? In good conscience? Or like these brothers? Do we find ourselves coming to Jesus with our agenda? Do we come to Him with our plans? For we have goals, every one of us in our own way, and we want to be great. And we can even couch that greatness in religious jargon, right? God, I want to do great things for you. But are we content, like John the Baptist, to say, He must increase, that I decrease? My plans for status, my plans for family, or for greatness, rather, status and greatness, whether those plans be in the family, whether that be part of fame, whether that is fortune, whatever, can we tear it all up and toss it in the trash and say, that's it, I don't need it, I'm complete with you, I don't need those things. We can say it, but friend, do you actually believe that? Or do you feel, do you feel cheated by God Do you feel somehow betrayed by God when things don't go your way? Because right there, when we feel cheated by him, when we feel betrayed by him, that reveals how much of our discipleship, in fact, has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with us. We're sadly a lot more like James and John than any of us would like to admit. And so here's Jesus walking into the last week of his life, and all his disciples can think to do is to bring the demand that he make them great. Even if it's at the expense of others, they'll say, right, Peter himself, make me a bit higher and a bit greater. All right, these guys are like one clown short of a circus. I mean, that's just how they're being pictured again. And there are so many things at this point that Jesus could have said in response to the disciples. Right, he could have called down fire from heaven, as James and John often want to do. He could have just cut the entire roster said, I'm done with this team. New tryouts next week. A whole different team that's willing to get with the program. I'm willing to start over with 12 fresh new disciples. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even rebuke their question which is amazing. He doesn't rebuke the question. What he does is he reframes their question. Friend, do you see how gracious and how long-suffering Jesus is right here? Now, sadly, I'm the kind of person who will read this and I'll pass right over it because, of course, I just presume that Jesus is going to be kind and compassionate and long-suffering. I assume that Jesus stands there ready to accept me whenever I want to come to him because somewhere deep down in my own heart, I think I'm pretty great and of course Jesus is going to accept me. And many of us are like that. But if you're one who thinks, now, there's no way this Jesus would have me back. Not after what I've done. Not after what I've become. If you're that person which in many ways could be a far more humble person. Notice again how Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples, but he actually invites them in. He draws them in to continue to follow him. And friend, it's the same with you. Jesus, even in that moment where you're in, he will take whatever you have of that discipleship, whatever you can give to him, he will take and he'll call you to follow him. He'll invite you to that. He'll receive it. However slow and however hobbled you may walk, however large your limp, he's like, that's fine. I can slow down. Walk with me. We'll go together. And it's what he does with the 12. So in verse 42, Jesus calls the disciples. And that expression to call is is really a summons. That word is used elsewhere in Mark. When Jesus is going to call them together and say, hey, listen, this is important. You all need to listen up. So it's like Jesus just blows the whistle. He says, okay, all of you guys are arguing again about who's greatest and who's gonna the seat at the right or the left. He blows the whistle and he says, enough of it. Gather round, we need to have a little talk. And in verse 42 to 45, he's gonna contrast their cultural notions of greatness with sort of the kingdom notions of greatness. And whereas culture measures it by status, Christ is gonna measure greatness by service. And that's the second thing I want us to see, that contrast. Whereas culture measures greatness by status, Christ measures it by service. Christ says, look, in verse 42, to how the Gentiles, how those rulers, how do they rule? He says, they lord it over you. That expression, lord it over, has a negative connotation, right? Through power and coercion. And their great ones exercise authority over them, verse 42. And that exercise authority connotes more of a tyranny like they act as tyrants over their people. So you can think of like a Putin in Russia. You, know, you can think of autocrats around the world who use all their power and authority and they use it in coercive ways and in oppressive ways. They rule for self-gain. And that's how the world works. Authority is amassed for self-interest. Power is like a drug and once you experience some of it, you have to have more and more. But in verse 43, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And right there to the disciples, Jesus might as well have been trying to teach about cold fire or about a sweet-smelling sewer. There are no ways those notions of service and greatness would go in hand-to-hand. So even in, in, uh, in Roman culture, right, Plato, Uh, Would talk um, in Greco-Roman culture. culture. He would. He would write Plato. Would how can one be happy when he has to serve someone? No notion of happiness in service. Entirely contrary to their way of thinking. Service was demeaning in that culture, and we we understand that to some level because we don't want to serve. What do we all like? We all love to be served. We love to be served. You know, why is the Ritz-Carlton considered like such a great hotel? They understand service. So back in my former job, on a few occasions, I was able to stay at a Ritz-Carlton. And I'll never forget the first time I show up. And I show up, and they ask me about my preferences for a pillow and for a mattress. I'm like, you mean I get a choice? About my own pillow and mattress in a hotel? Never had that before. Well, guess what? I felt pretty important. I felt like a good bit of status pretty special. Right? We like that. What makes Lord Grantham of Downton Abbey great? What makes Queen Elizabeth great in England? What do we think of? We think of their servants, all the servants that are there to do their bidding, scores of people whose sole job and whose singular purpose is to see that their every need and every whim is met. And we look at that and we're like, man, wouldn't that be the life? To have everyone there at my beck and call and to meet my needs, right? Just ring a little bell and voila, someone appears. You know, Charles, I want to take the rolls for, for a little ride. He's like, oh, I'll get it warmed up for you. you know, give me some brandy in the library or whatever, Welch's, Baptist, you know the point. <laughs> whatever it is, like, they're there and they're there to meet any need you've got. Any need. Jesus is saying, though, that true greatness is measured by our service. Not by our number of servants. It's actually not it at all. And right there, he's turning the world's value system upside down. Honestly, he's turning many of our own value systems right here in this room, turning them on their head. Because greatness to Jesus is not about how much one gets, but about what they can give. It's not about amassing all these benefits to oneself, but it's about how you're a blessing to others. And that's what true greatness is, according to Jesus. It's a life given in the service of others. Friend, I wonder if in any way, if you hold yourself out to be a Christian, right, members of UBC in particular, how does this life, a life given in service, does it describe you at all? Does that describe your life? Jesus is saying true greatness is radically others-centered. So to parents in the room, right, to mothers, to, to fathers, to bosses, right, even older siblings, even you in the room. Recognize the Bible doesn't just say great leaders are fair and just leaders. No, it goes much further than that. It's calling great leaders to sacrifice themselves in the service of others. It's what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Jesus is saying, and Paul is even advocating right there, that true greatness, not about self-aggrandizement. It's not about that. It's about self-sacrificial empowerment of others. True greatness is focused on meeting the needs of others, not actually controlling others in order to have your needs met. Because at every moment and in every relationship, you are either ministering to people or manipulating people. Those are the options we have. You're either ministering to others for their benefit or you're seeking to manipulate others for your benefit. One or the other. Friend, I wonder what describes you. Think about your workplace, in your marriage maybe in your classroom or in the dorm room are you ministering to others or are you subtly and slyly in your own ways maybe even subconsciously manipulating others for your benefit maybe you work in retail you know maybe you're a server in a restaurant you're tired of serving others maybe you're an admin assistant here this morning and you're thinking you know what i'd love to be served you're a mom in the room, you're like, I do a lot of serving. I'd love to be served. I long for the day when I can just ring a bell and someone's gonna bring me coffee or or I can just ding and someone, right? Someone would serve me. And part of what Jesus is saying to you is he's saying to you, take heart. That service is the essence of true greatness. That ability to serve others joyfully and contentedly, that ability is actually what makes you most like Jesus. And in the kingdom to come, that's what makes you first in that kingdom. You know, the reality is all the great people, all the people on the front of our magazines and newspapers, all the people whose names are etched in stone, all of that, the people we think are great, and the new heavens and new earth, we won't see their names. Or if we do see them, they won't be high on buildings and walls. they are going to be a whole host of names we'll probably never recognize, but people who are truly great in God's eyes. And friends, this is hard because consciously or not, how do all of us approach most relationships? We approach them with this question, what will it do for me? In marriage, in friendships, what are we asking? How will this relationship serve me? How will this relationship encourage me? In the workplace, we ask how will this job, how will it better me? How will this job serve my professional development? In the church, we even ask, How's the church going to serve me? How is this church going to meet my spiritual need? And in every sphere, Jesus is saying, You're asking the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question is not, What can I get? but the question around greatness is, What am I prepared to give? How am I prepared to serve? And he says, look no further than me. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Recognize that right there. Is it the climax of this passage? Absolutely. But not just that. Mark 10.45 is actually the centerpiece of the entire gospel. It's the centerpiece of the whole gospel. Everything Jesus has been about, from teaching, doing these last three years, have been building to this verse and are captured in this one verse, Mark 10.45. It's the theme verse for the entire gospel. You can underline it. You ought to memorize it. You ought to ponder it. There it is. Mark 10.45. It's the theme. It's Jesus' life and ministry, why he came. So, friend, if you've come in this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, maybe you're confident you're not a Christian, you believe some other set of values and belief systems, or maybe you're not really sure, maybe you're just a bit of a skeptic, at any rate, it's Christmas. And one of the things at Christmas time that can be difficult is we talk a lot about shopping, we talk a lot about stockings, we know somewhere back in there Christmas is about Jesus, but don't really know what it has to do exactly with Jesus. And so maybe ask yourself this question, why was Jesus born? Why did he come? Why would God become man? And recognize that is the most important question one can ask, not merely at Christmas, though it's a natural time to ask that question, but why would God become man? And that question is not meant to be Some divine riddle. It's not meant to be a puzzle or a mystery. Jesus doesn't leave us wondering and pondering and guessing. No, he flat out tells us why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. That word ransom is used as a a price, like a manumission price to, to redeem slaves. It was a payment one made to rescue someone from bondage. So this ransom was used of how God delivered Israel out of Egypt and out of her slavery. Only the Bible says all of us are enslaved to a much greater master, a much graver master. We're slaves to sin, slaves to its passions, slaves to its consequences. And Jesus came and became man with the express purpose to deliver us from that slavery. So I don't know if you picked up, just if you've got your worship guide, I mean, just notice how we opened in singing this morning. The very first song. We think of it, oh, it's a sweet little Christmas song, and it is. But that very first line, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. You see that right there, that opening line. We need to be ransomed from our own captivity. Or just look to page seven, yet not I, but through Christ to me. The third line, third stanza, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure. How? Do we know that? The price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. Notice his life. He gave it. It wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave his life. It was a willing sacrifice. And it was for many, we read. Jesus offered it up in the place of as a substitute for others. The world thinks of Jesus' death and they think it as the pitiful death of a martyr, but Jesus says he gave it willingly as a vicarious savior. That's what he's teaching about his own life, about his own ministry. That's what that whole bit about drinking the cup earlier the drinking the cup and then talking about the baptism in verses 38 and 39, right? To drink the cup is to experience something. Sometimes it's blessing in the Old Testament. It's often though to experience wrath, God's judgment. It's what we read earlier from Isaiah 51, right? The cup of God's wrath. Friend, that is not a cup any of us ever want to drink. Now our only hope as we thought of even earlier in that reading, is that someone has to take that cup from us. Someone has to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying that he came here to do. It's what we were singing last week, Jesus, thank you, I think it was, that new song we're learning. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect holy one, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. It was a total fail not to sing that song this morning, sorry. But you can sing it later this afternoon. Friend, I wonder if you've ever had a bill you can't pay. A credit card statement, a hospital invoice, a rent payment. Have you ever had something like that and there is no way for you to pay it? You don't know what to do. You don't know where the money's gonna come from. Friend, take that feeling of utter helplessness and dread, take that out to the nth degree, out to infinity, and that is all of our position before this holy God. And there's no loan, there's no government stimulus, there's no deferral program, nothing that can pay that for us. The price of our sins is too great, which is why Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom. He made that payment. And then he rose from the grave as proof that God had accepted that payment and that sacrifice. Friend, that is not a debt you can pay. And again, God doesn't put you on some deferral program in the sense that you might ever be able to pay it. No, he must pay it for you, which is why Jesus came for you. And to accept it, he calls you to repent of your status, to repent of your self-interest, to repent of living that kingdom for you, to repent of your sins and throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ and to follow him. That's what we're all called to do, all of us who follow Jesus. That's what true greatness looks like. It's not measured in medals. It's not measured in honorific titles. It's not measured in plaques on the wall or names etched in stone above fancy buildings. That's not true greatness. True greatness is not seen in how high up the ladder we can climb. But in how far down the ladder we are willing to go in the service of others. For it's only by going down in humility that any of us will find ourselves being lifted up in glory. True greatness is a life given for Jesus and the service of others. Friends, the question is, will your life be a truly great life? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do pray. And we pray that you convict us of all the ways that we've misunderstood greatness. Of all the ways in which our heart is drawn toward the greatness of this world and as our culture defines it and as we often love to experience it. We love the accolades. We love the applause. Oh God, we pray that we would long to hear even more the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.